Father God, we come to you this morning. We acknowledge that you truly are worthy. We come to worship you with our full self today. Our mind, our heart, our spirit, we give it all to you today because you are Lord. We're reminded of the words of the prophet Isaiah when he says, do not be fearful, but because you know that I have redeemed you. I call you by name. I lift you up. I save you. Father, it's good to be know today that you have called us by name, that you know so intimately well, that we come to this place knowing that we can express our deepest concern, the deepest need of our very life. We can lay it at your feet today, knowing that you hear our prayers. As we do that, Father, right now, some of us, I know this past week, have been to the doctor and have gotten serious news. I know some of us are going through family struggles. I know some of us are experiencing difficulty in relationships at work or at home or in other places. Lord, we know that you know our needs. And because of that, in confidence, we come before you this morning because you do know our name. You are worthy, and we know that you can minister through us and in us and make a difference in our life. Father, we just simply praise today and pray that you would surround us and minister to us, whatever the need might be. Father, cleanse us. May we confess the things that fall in the way between us and you. Father, we simply come for anointing of your presence, for the filling of your Holy Spirit, for the forgiveness of sin, and for the way that you work in our lives to bring us wholeness and freshness and newness. Lord, touch us afresh today through your Holy Spirit. And may we acknowledge that with our whole being as we worship you today in spirit and in truth. Lord, bless us as we continue in our worship today. May everything that we do be acceptable in your sight and bring honor and glory to your worthy name. We pray in that name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. not going to get this out of here. Good morning. Let me, let me fix this quick. Well, can you see me? <laughs> My name is Lisa DeYoung, and I'm here on behalf of the pulpit committee this morning. I know you are used to seeing Bill Shepard up here, uh, but this morning you're stuck with me because Bill and Dean Lance and Katrina Portis, along with Jim Schooneman, um, who's the chair of our advisory council, are off this weekend to Middletown, Ohio, visiting with Pastor David Culp and the church at Brill Boulevard. Today's uh, Pastor Culp's last Sunday there, and Brill Boulevard is doing a really cool and exciting thing for him today. They're sending him off with their blessing by way of an official commissioning service later this afternoon. And I just think that's a really cool thing, and I want to remind you on behalf of the pulpit committee to pray for Brill Boulevard Church of God as they release Pastor Culp and begin uh, to look at their own process in searching for a new senior pastor. Uh, the Culps are almost here. It's going to be a few weeks, so as uh, Pastor Confer stated, we have lined up, the Pulp Committee's lined up a few guest speakers for you. Um, but today's speaker, I don't really think of him as a guest. I think of him as more of a friend. Um, we got to know him really well uh, last summer 
when he was here as our interim. And so I'm just going to remind you again where Dr. Brewer has come from. Dr. Guy Brewer is an associate professor of pastoral theology at Anderson University. Guy teaches homiletics and pastoral theology and spiritual formation. Prior to his role at Anderson, he served as college chaplain at Sweetbriar College in Virginia, and also during those same years, he was a member of the graduate faculty of Liberty University and as a professor in counseling and family studies. As an ordained pastor, Guy served in parish ministry and also as a university chaplain since 1984. He served small and large congregations in Florida and was the founding pastor of Edgewater United Methodist Church in Port Charlotte, Florida. Dr. Brewer served as Director of Campus Ministries and Religious Life Department Chair at the University of Miami. He has earned degrees from Emory University, Vanderbilt University, and Asbury Seminary. He continues his studies through Oxford University on postmodern culture, culture and preaching in the emerging church. The Lord knew what we needed to hear last summer, and he sent Dr. Brewer to deliver that message. Dr. Brewer spoke to us, um, not just on Sunday morning, but also um, to the advisory council, to the pulpit committee, and the staff. He spoke the truth in love, and he counseled us wisely. And I would like to ask you to welcome back our friend, Dr. Guy Brewer. Thank you, Rachel. God bless you all. It's so good to see you again. It really is. Let's take a moment to turn our attention where it really matters. And that is to, um, to the Lord. Here is a word from the Gospel of Luke. It's from the 12th chapter of Luke. Perhaps to some of you this story will be familiar. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get all of these things that you have prepared for yourself? This is 
how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Well, Lord, how grateful we are for your word when it is a word of encouragement, a word of teaching, as it is today, a word of warning. It is all grace, and it all comes as a word of love. And Lord, I want to pray with my friends here, with my sisters and brothers, a word of gratitude for this time together today. Thank you for the bond of love that you have forged between us. Thank you that Rena and I might have the honor to be a part of their church family here today, but in every day as we're part of the body of Christ. And come, Lord Jesus, speak to us yourself today through my words. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the odds, the odds against today's sermon are 750 million to one. 750 million. That's the number of people who are estimated to have played Monopoly, the world's most popular board game since it was first introduced in 1935. Three quarters of a billion people amusing ourselves, pretending to be rich and greedy. <laughs> Go figure. And then there is that one voice, the voice of Jesus, urgently calling us to play the game of life in a different way. You know, uh, George and William, George and Charles, rather, uh, Charles Parker, uh, came up with this game in the middle of the Great Depression. They were out of work like everybody else there in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And to amuse themselves, they would gather with their friends in the evening and they'd pretend to be rich. They'd pretend to own all of the property that they saw around Atlantic City there. And the way they designed their parlor game, everybody was rich to start. But then across the evening, they would try to take each other's money away. They would try to become richer and richer, whether they needed it or not, at any cost. Well, they obviously hit a common chord, didn't they? Because this game, when it was published in 1935, was an immediate success. Every place I have been, they've had their own version of Monopoly. At the University of Miami, we had Caneopoly. Um, I was um, visiting with some young people recently from Ohio State, Buckeyeology. <laughs> I mean, everywhere you go, there's Monopoly. And as a kid, I loved this game. Do we have any Monopoly players here? Oh, come on, you can be honest. Today is the day of repentance. There you go. Part of the 750 million. I love this game. My brothers and I would play it by the hours. There was Terry, my oldest brother. He always took a cash strategy. He would try to gather all the cash that he po possibly could because, you know, at the end, the winner is the person who counts up with the most money. So he'd try to gather cash. And then I took a, I took a mixed strategy. 
I would try to, to get any monopoly I could, as early as I could. I'd even go for those real cheap purple properties. You remember Mediterranean and Baltic Avenue? <laughs> they were about 60 bucks a piece. I figured a monopoly is a monopoly. I'd build hotels on it and hope to snag some unfortunate soul that passed by on that. And, and I'd lay in wait, just hoping, praying. I'd find myself praying, God, let me get Park Place. Let, <laughs> let me get Boardwalk. I need a real monopoly here. And then there was Mark my younger brother. He always took the same plodding, methodical strategy. He'd buy all the railroads. He'd buy all the utilities. And he'd always win. We were convinced he was cheating. We, we, somehow as kids, we couldn't see through it, that this guy had a strategy, you know. We, we were convinced he was cheating. He's cheating, Mom. We'd yell, and Mama would come out and say, now boys, it's silly, ridiculous to be fighting over that silly game. In a minute, I'm going to serve supper, and then it all goes back in a box. How right she was. It is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? 750 million people amusing ourselves, pretending to be greedy. And somehow, I just really have trouble envisioning Jesus playing Monopoly. I mean, try to, try to get your mind around that for a moment. Envision <laughs> Jesus sitting there with Peter, James, and John. <laughs> playing Monopoly. You know who always won? Judas. <laughs> you just can't even envision it. Well, you can't envision it because Jesus is that one voice out of millions who is saying, Oh no, be on your guard. Watch out. Be careful of all forms of greed. Because greed won't get it done in your life. A person's life does not consist of his possessions. As a matter of fact, the text that we have today speaks to a real-life situation of greed. And as I have read this and reread this and studied it over the years, I've often thought, well, what got Jesus so cranked about this? I mean, why, why respond the way that he did? But, you know, if you begin to, to read the Bible with a careful eye, you realize that this is a repeated drumbeat theme throughout the Bible, and particularly in the words of Jesus. Of the 38 parables that Jesus told, 16 of them focus on the misuse of money and possessions. 16 out of 38. Of all of the verses in the New Testament, one out of ten deal with money. Of all of the verses in the Bible, 500 verses deal with prayer. That's good. We expect that. 500 deal with faith. More than 2,000 deal with money and possessions. This is a repeated drumbeat, one voice theme throughout the scriptures. Be careful of all forms of greed. And if we look at our cultural context, We've got to say, that's us. We, we need help. We really need help. Sociologists use lots of terms to refer to our time, but one of the terms I think is hilarious is a culture of clutter. Have you heard that? A culture of clutter. They're basing that comment on the fact that we now have, as of last year, almost 2 billion, 1.9 billion square feet of storage space other than our homes to keep all of the stuff that we have here in the United States. I'm talking about those little garage-looking places that you see around. You store it, really store it, store it all, 
Store it here. You know, they all have different names with store in them. 40,000 of those facilities in the United States. And growing every day. One of the new hot professions in the United States is professional organizer. This is a person who for $75 an hour will take all of this stuff that we have and organize it for us. Try to find some way to cram it into our houses, to cram it into our lives. I've actually thought about hiring one of those guys. Anybody able to do that work? I, <laughs> I think we probably need a professional organizer or, or maybe we need to look at the deeper issue. Maybe we need to look at that insatiable desire to have more that characterizes humankind. Now I want to be clear with you here about the tone of this story. You know, this story, to me, really hits at a lot of tender places in American life. We have all heard so often across our lives that the American way is to be prosperous, is to be successful. And Jesus never condemns riches, and neither do I. The problem is greed. That's the problem here, is greed. That, that desire to have more simply because you can have more. We had a, a, a tongue-in-cheek club at Sweetbriar College that was called the Fun Club. And the motto of it was, more is more. And the club would get together twice a year and exchange all of these tacky gifts. You know, pink flamingos you know, put on your yard. And, uh, you know, beach balls, every kind of tacky thing in the world that, that no one could ever use. And we all treasure them. You know, when I got ready to move to, to Anderson, <coughs> pardon me, one of my, you know, part of my onks was to say, you know, can I take my fun club gifts with me? And the answer is no. You never, you never needed this stuff. It's greed. The Romans had a proverb about greed. They said that greed is like drinking salt water. The more you drink of it, the thirstier you get. And that's what Jesus is warning us about today. Watch out, he says. Be on your guard against all forms of greed. For a person's life doesn't consist of possessions. And Jesus is addressing a real-life situation of greed, isn't he? Out of the crowd, here is this desperate man saying, uh, Jesus, Lord, <laughs> tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The nerve of that guy. I mean, can you imagine how upset he must have been? How desperate he must have been in a crowd of thousands to single himself out, to interrupt what Jesus was doing, asking for a judicial decision about an inheritance. And to make it worse, Jesus doesn't want to respond. He says, you know, I'm, I'm not your judge. I'm not your arbiter. I, I don't want to judge you or anyone else in this situation. Not really why I'm here, he says. And then the Lord speaks to that deeper issue. Greed. That's the real problem. You wonder how many families have been torn apart by fights over inheritances, over wills. Mama died back uh, a year or so ago, back in April. April of last year. And one of the resolves that I made in my heart was that it didn't matter what she had owned or what she had left. I was simply not going to get in a fight over it. And you know, I'm really glad I made that resolve. I had to ask the Lord to help me so many times in the middle of that because you find yourself hooked, hooked by this greed, by, by the things that are staring at you, by saying, gee, if I just had that, oh, if I just had that. Yeah, it's a problem. 
So here we have Jesus addressing the greed-driven lie. That's really what he's addressing here. He's saying, in essence, it's really, this is a prophetic story. He's saying as a prophet, don't be that guy. Don't be this guy whose life is driven by the desire for more. Don't be this deluded person who thinks if you just had this, then you'd be okay. Don't be that guy. And as he tells the story, this parable of the rich fool, it really is an anatomy of greed. That's the point of the story, is to help his listeners then and now, to help us, to know something about what life is like when it's dominated by greed. He says, don't be conceited. You know, that's the first piece in the, in the life that is driven by greed. It's our next slide. There it is. Don't be conceited, he's saying. Don't be like this little bunny here that you see that says, it's all about me. Deal with it. The rich man said to himself, what shall I do? He's wondering only about himself. He thinks only of himself. My mentor, Floyd Dennis, a fellow I knew many years ago now, used to say, you know, guy, you should listen carefully to the way that people talk because you'll know them by their pronouns, he would say. Look for the first-person pronouns. Look for I and me and mine and myself. Look for the ways that people describe their lives that way. And you know a lot about them. You know, Floyd was right. In this brief parable, the rich fool uses I, me, mine, myself 11 times in these reflections. He's the only one on his mind. So when he asked the question, wow, I have this very happy circumstance in my life. I have this bumper crop. What shall I do? Let's see. A. Tithe. B. Give to the poor. C. Help out a friend. D. Pray about it and ask God what he thinks. E. None of the above. <laughs> it's none of the above. The only thing on his mind is himself. And that is the way it works. The greedier we become, the more self-centered we become. The more self-centered we become, the greedier we become. It's a key part of that whole dark vortex in our life of being sucked into believing that more is more and that possessions will make us happy. So he deals with conceit. And he also deals with being a complacent person. You have plenty of good stuff laid up for years, he says. Take life easy. He's part of the apathy support group. You can see it up there. <laughs> no one shows up when you have a meeting of that, by the way. <laughs> he's basically figuring that he's paid his dues. He's earned his way. So take it easy now. I run into a long-term friend, Johnny, at the meeting of the annual conference of the United Methodist Church in Florida this past May. He looked tired. He looked really discouraged, worn out really. So I said, Johnny, how are you anyway? And he said, Guy, these days, two sweet words keep me going until 2008, early retirement. <laughs> you know, I can relate to that. I can really relate to that. I can relate to being tired and discouraged. I can relate to that deception, because it is a deception. That if you just lay up enough things now, the day will come and you can take it easy and just kind of live off of those things. 
a matter of fact, it's a huge industry and a growing industry in America, isn't it? To create within all of us this sense that the goal in life is to, to accumulate enough possessions that you can just take it easy. We're being taught by Madison Avenue to be rich fools. And I say that tenderly because I struggle with that same impulse. I hear that same message. I'm not making fun of anyone. I'm just saying to you that that's a complacent lie. And please help me. If you can find it, I wish you would email me, grbrewer at anderson.edu. Please email me if you can find anywhere in the Bible that commends take life easy as a biblical goal for life. I haven't found it. I'm looking. <laughs> I mean, I would just like to, I'm, I figure if I can find this, I can sell books with that title. Take life easy. The Bible's view of life. And never have to work again. But I think I'll have to make it up to write the book. He was complacent. And he was a person who was the consummate consumer. He was consumerist. Eat, drink, and be merry. Here are our two chickens talking. Let's see, can we read it? Yeah, the one says, I'm depressed. I think I'll go shopping. And the other says, the economy is counting on your continued unhappiness. <laughs> Indeed it is. Eat, drink, and be merry, this fellow says. And we all, we all have heard that message. We all embrace that message from time to time. That We're all drawn into that notion that to, to eat, drink, and be merry is the point of life. Rena and I were recently in San Francisco for the wedding of our youngest son. We happened to be there on the days that they were releasing the new iPhone. So there were the Apple stores there. We went past two of them while we were there. And there were people lined up for blocks waiting to buy this new iPhone. Some of them had been parked out two, three days. I tell you, they were pretty nasty, pretty grungy, parked out there, um, waiting to buy their new iPhone, if there were any left when they got there. And while they were sitting there waiting, they, they were talking on their perfectly good cell phones. And so I thought, you know, these guys, they, they need help. They need to get into counseling. Uh, they'd be talking on the phone, and waiting in line for days to get a new cell phone. I mean, what's their problem or whatever? And it wasn't a week later, I ran into one of my nephews who had just gotten the new iPhone. And I thought, wow. Look at that iPhone. <laughs> That's a great phone. <laughs> wow. I, gee, I wish I'd have gotten in line <laughs> to, to get one of those phones. Man, it's like that, isn't it? It's just like a, it's like some kind of a, it's like a swamp that draws us in, like a, like a, like a sand pit, quicksand that we stumble into and we, we find ourselves thinking, you know, I've just got to have one more of those new things. I mean, what I have is is not good enough. And you know why you think that? You think that because you hear more than 40,000 commercials a year telling you that whatever you have is not enough. That it's not good enough. That it's not fancy enough. That it's not technologically advanced enough. That it won't get the girls or the guys. That it doesn't smell good enough or taste good enough. We're all such consumers. And then I think about that day that's coming. It's coming. It's coming for me. It's coming for you. It comes for all of us. That day that will come when I'll have to stand before the Lord. <laughs> and they'll say, so guy, uh, nice iPhone. 
What did you do with your life anyway? Tell me about it. Oh, I consumed, Lord. I was a consumer. You know, I was part of a consumer society. It was the nature of our times when I lived. We called ourselves a consumer society. Can you imagine the look on God's face? Can you imagine the sadness to think how I'd wasted my life? I mean, I, I, I never want to hear those words that appear in the scripture today because I think it is the word that someone who's wasted his life in that way. They say, you fool. You fool. What were you thinking about? Well, it's really the issue, isn't it? It, it, is, it is that last part of the anatomy is, is that most of all, this rich fool is a confused person. He's very confused. It, he doesn't really know what matters in life. He's so busy playing the game of life that he forgets that, you know, there comes a day when this all goes back in a box. He's forgetting that. Somehow or another, we can convince ourselves, and, and this man is portrayed as doing this, of thinking that if we possess a lot of things, that we possess life itself. It's just not true. None of us possesses life. Life is a gift. And perhaps the, the greatest deception with which this person is dealing, the greatest confusion that he has, is he is confusing grace and greed. He confuses grace with greed. Somehow or another, he, he has the sense that that he has to take care of himself, that he has to be the provider, that he has to work and provide everything for himself. And God says, you fool. You fool. Now, I mentioned early on that this is a message where the tone of what is said means as much as what is said. In other words, it, all of us know that it's not just what we say, it's the way you say it. How often have you said that maybe in an argument with your spouse? Oh, it's not just what you said, it's the way you said it. Well, think for a moment of how God may be saying these words that make us cringe. You fool. Don't you cringe every time you hear those? Every time you read it? You fool. I don't believe God is saying this with a mean look on his face saying, I told you so. You're such an idiot. You'll never amount to anything. It's not that at all. I think God has a pained look on his face. I think God has a tear in his eye that his voice is breaking in sorrow, in disappointment for his child who has missed the point of life. I think that's what's going on here. The fool says in his heart there is no God. This person, this rich fool is living as if God does not exist. <laughs> wow. Glad I've never done that. What a terrible admission. You know, I really, I publicly repent of that today. Those days when I find myself living as if God does not exist, claiming to believe in Christ, claiming to believe in salvation, which I do, Cla claiming to devote my life to Christ, which I so much want, but on many days living as if, well, there's God, and then I've really got to take care of business here. I, I've, I've got to get it done because no one else will get this done. I've got to provide for myself and my family because God won't provide. I, I, how quickly we Christians forget this drumbeat of Jesus who says over and over again, do not be afraid. Do not worry. Do not run after things like those who don't believe in God, like pagans do. Trust in God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. I mean, it, it is, it's throughout the Bible. And yet, day to day, it's so easy to live as if nothing like that was ever said or written.
Here is Jesus in this story giving us the key. He says it's going to be like this rich fool. This is how it's going to turn out for anyone who is gathering up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Rich toward God. I mean, he's talking about grace, isn't he? He's talking about the fact that everything we have came from God. Everything is a gift. And those who are rich are simply those who can receive the gifts. Those who acknowledge that everything comes from God. He's really saying that the quality of our lives is so much more than the quantity of our possessions. Let me repeat that. That's worth really thinking about. The quality of our lives is so much more than the quantity of our possessions. Every once in a while we get it. I was talking a while back with a, a, a younger friend, a man named Bill, who was telling me about his son, Sean, and Sean's uh, birthday party, his eighth birthday party they had just celebrated. And Sean wanted a Transformers birthday party. Have you all seen that new movie that's coming out? He wanted a Transformers birthday party. So they were going to have a Transformers theme with all the hats and table favors and all the rest, including a Transformers cake. And I was wondering what a Transformers cake transforms into when you gather 15 eight-year-olds, but uh, I wasn't really going to ask. But uh, the, the key of the story was really talking about Sean's birthday list. And uh, his dad asked him, he said, well, Sean, what do you want for your birthday? And he said, Dad, uh, he said, I think I'd like a Monopoly game, but what I'd really like is a football. And he said, oh, no Transformers? He said, nah. I just lose them or they break in a week or so. No, I think I want a Monopoly game or a football. So, so his dad thought that was an unusual list. He said, well, tell me about it. He said, why do you want a Monopoly game? He said, well, I could play Monopoly with a lot of my friends. It'd be a lot of fun. We can play Monopoly when you have to work. And we'll have fun playing it. And he said, and the football. Is that so you can play football with your friends outside? He said, oh, no. He said, I, said, I want the football so me and you can play. I mean... If you're not too busy to play with me, Dad. Bill got the message. Sean got the football. And what was the message? The message was that the quality of our lives is so much more than the quantity of our possessions. Well, Lord, um, wow. When we hear your word, uh, we stand under it. And we're so grateful that you speak as a loving parent to us, that you speak words of warning when we need them, and that you never give up on us, that your character is expressed in grace. And today you offer us grace. You invite us to a fresh start to look at the daily conduct of our lives, to look at our attitudes. Frankly, Lord, to look at the greed wherever it is in our lives. And by the grace of God, to go another way. To play the game of life as Jesus taught us in his love. To be rich toward God. Help us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
May we go with this message today. The values that we place in life are so important. The things that we do with our lives make a world of difference, not only for us, but those who live around us or are influenced by the decisions that we make. Thank you, Guy, for a wonderful reminder today of the importance of relationship and the wealth that we have. I invite you to be seated just for a moment today. As we conclude our service, we have a, a wonderful opportunity to think collectively together about relationship. I'm going to ask all the worker, work campers who are going to uh, Hungary to come and join me here at the steps of the sanctuary. Please come at this time. While they're coming, pull out a, I think it's a, a salmon color. I'm not sure of my colors, but I think it's salmon color. Insert about the Paraguay, excuse me, the Hungary work camp coming up uh, this beginning this week. Many of us have been aware and just come and stand here in front of us at the altar uh, that there's a group of 17 persons from our church family. Many of them are here this morning, some are not. I'm going to have you turn and face the congregation and uh, let them see your smiley faces. Uh, but a wonderful ministry we have in not only uh, Hungary but in several places around the world. Uh, as we reach out in love and, and Christian concern for uh, neighbors around the globe, seriously, as we share as First Church. These folks in 17 total group are going to uh, uh, the country of Hungary this Friday, leaving. Glenn Youngstead is leading the group along with Pastor uh, Rick Blumenberg will be going. Uh, they're going to uh, prepare a parsonage on top of a current church building, uh, an attic, if you wish, that is being renovated into an apartment for uh, Pastor Jolie and uh, uh, his wife and their family. And I know that we want to lift them up in our prayers as they go in our behalf to minister to that family, to that church congregation there in Budokolos, and to be a part of our ongoing ministry in the country of Hungary. I'm going to invite you as a congregation to stand in unison with me as we celebrate this time of commissioning, as we acknowledge this work camp experience in the life of our church family as they go to serve in our behalf, in our name, to serve the Lord in this place. Join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you today for the privilege we have of being able to go and to minister in other parts of the world. We're grateful for the willingness of these 17 persons from our church family, persons that we know, persons that we love, who go in our stead to a place that we may not be able to go ourselves, but we go in way of ministry to them today. Father, we just commission them in your name, give them safety as they journey, give them safety as they work, and serve the country and the community there in Budokolos. Father, I'd pray today that as they go, that they would go with a, a sense of your presence, uh, a sense of your well-being in their lives as they minister, as they build friendships, as they renew friendships, as they serve, Father, this congregation. May you go with them in every way. Give them safety, watch over them, give them wisdom and patience. And just, Lord, may this time of work be a special, meaningful event in their lives. May they come back with renewed desire to serve you in other ways. May they come back with a renewed relationship with you. May they come back, Father, recognizing the importance of relationship and giving to your kingdom. Bless them, Father. Bless the congregation in Budokolos today as they anticipate their arrival. And may these next two weeks be powerful weeks in your kingdom as uh, individuals and families share in the name of Christ. We pray your blessing upon them as they go. In Christ's name, amen.